0: So we know that more exercise and higher levels of cardiovascular fitness, higher levels of physical activity, they decrease our chances of cognitive decline, they decrease our chances of developing dementia. Even if your genes say, hey, you're at a high risk for dementia. You may stave it off, or you may develop it seven years later instead of right then and there. Right? So, exercise has been found to be extremely beneficial for staving off cognitive decline.
1: Hi, everyone. Drew Prode here, host of the Broken Brain Podcast. Today's episode, we're talking about movement and brain health. If you care about your brain health now, but especially if you want to prevent cognitive decline in the future, this episode is for you. We're interviewing Ryan Glatt, a dear friend of mine, who is a brain health coach, and brain health expert who's going can talk all about the power of movement and the latest science and research that's out there and available to us when it comes to what are the best types of movement. It's not all about going to the gym and just hitting the weights. There's a lot more fun things that are out there that we can do to support our brain function. It's a fascinating interview, and anybody who cares about the future of their brains should definitely listen. Stay tuned. Here we go. Hi, everyone. Drew Brode here, host of the Broken Marine Podcast. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to talk to you about my favorite go-to meal. It's a huge, healthy, hearty salad. And the key is I never get bored of it because I'm constantly mixing it up and I'm including a lot of colors, a lot of layers, and a lot of textures. I'll give you an example. Just the other day I made one. I took arugula, butter lettuce, I took fresh basil, mint, then I added things like nutritional yeast, red onion, avocado, watermelon radish, wild-caught sardines, cucumbers, uh, a seed blend, uh, and roasted chickpeas. And then I mixed it all up. I poured on Extra Virgin organic olive oil and a little bit of Primal Kitchen dressing, which I love and I served it up, everybody loved it, it was a hit. Now the key is, I get all these condiments from Thrive Market delivered to my door so I don't have to think and I can mix up my salad every single day. I can order all the pantry ingredients I use in my daily salads like wild-caught sardines, salmon, olive oil, hemp seeds, Uh, Hemp oil, beans, and lentils, which I don't do a lot of, but I love to throw in every once in a while. Clean dressings, nuts, and seeds. And again, I get them delivered to my door so I don't have to think of it, and I can vary my salad every single day. Thrive Market has thousands of products, including gluten-free, dairy-free, organic, paleo, fair trade, vegan. Whatever you're following right now, they got that ingredient for your type of diet and also They have toothpaste and skincare products and non-toxic cleaning products for incredible prices, which are great if you wanna keep your home clean during these times. They also, bonus, carry grass-fed beef and sustainable seafood options. It's so simple to plan ahead with Thrive Market and get all those items delivered to your door so you never feel bored of your favorite go-to meal, which I hope you'll try my salad out. If you join Thrive Market today, you'll get a $20 shopping credit when you place your first order. Any order above $49 ships for free and because sustainability is a huge thing that Thrive Market cares about and we care about, and I know you care about too, Everything ships carbon neutral from their zero waste warehouses. That's freaking huge. Now, if you're interested, just go to thrivemarket.com brokenbrain to sign up and start filling your cart up today. You'll see the discount automatically applied when you go to thrivemarket.com slash brokenbrain. Welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Perroitt, and each week my team and I bring on a new guest who we think can help you improve your brain health, feel better, and most importantly, live more. This week's guest is Ryan Glatt. Ryan is a personal trainer and brain health coach with over a decade of experience in the health and fitness industries. He currently works alongside clinicians and researchers to study the effects of cognitively enhanced and comprehensive exercise plans at the Pacific Brain Health Center here in lovely Santa Monica, California. Ryan constantly seeks to learn about the health neuroscience research and practical strategies in both health coaching and personal training contexts, which is why we've brought him here. Ryan has pursued education from the Amon Clinics, the Brain First Training Institute, the Neuroscience Academy, the Academy for Brain Health and Performance, and many other places. He is currently enrolled in a Master's of Applied Neuroscience program at King's College of London. He actively consults with companies who leverage exercise for brain health and educates health and fitness professionals with the first course to comprehensively address exercise and brain health, called the Brain Health Trainer Course. We'll talk more about that later on, in which he's educated over a thousand health and fitness professionals. Ryan welcome to the broken brain podcast thanks for having me drew and you were also in our documentary and people really loved it that's good we've set the intention we did a documentary uh by the way if anybody hasn't hasn't watched that documentary before broken brain 2 uh click on the show notes we'll make it available for anybody who hasn't seen it and you can sign up and uh, check it out and uh, see some of uh ryan's recommendations uh that will be built on today's uh conversation so um we set out the intention when we first did that interview that we wanted to do an interview for the podcast. So I'm glad it happened. This is the first interview that I'm doing in person in the world of uh, semi-quarantine and social distancing. So uh, thank you for coming into the office.
0: It's an honor. Thanks for having me.
1: So I want to start off with something, which is uh, I want to talk about Dance Dance
0: Revolution.
1: (laughs) So tell us, for anybody who doesn't know what it is, tell us what it is and why you became passionate about
0: it. Yeah, so Dance Dance Revolution is a video game Uh, It's an Uh, exer-game. Exer-games are things that incorporate exercise and gaming uh, and or active video games. Uh, It was followed by the success of like the Nintendo Wii, for instance, that became very popular. Dance Dance Revolution's interesting because it was popularized when I was a kid, uh, probably before that, I think in the late 80s and 90s. And it's essentially a game where your controller is a pad that you stand on In the middle is your standing place. You have an arrow pointing forward, pointing backwards, one to the left and one to the right. There's arrows coming up from the bottom of the screen. And you have this answer key at the top with those different directionally facing arrows. And it's to music. And it was a Japanese video game developed by Konami. And it was super popular in arcades, at home on like the PlayStation 2. And I grew up as a very overweight and sedentary kid. I had a pretty severe concussion in preschool and so Uh, That created some concussion-induced ADHD. So I was, like, addicted to video games. And I think I would then have met the criteria for video game addiction now, which is, like, it wasn't every day, but it was, like, four hours a day uh, of video gaming. Now, I was, like into early call of duty before it was like an esports thing so if i kept on it i could have probably been pretty wealthy right now playing call of duty but i actually came across the home version of dance dance revolution when i was a kid in high school actually no middle school uh, early middle school and i lost a lot of weight playing that in my living room and it got me into exercise it got me to lose weight and it was motivating it had all the elements we might talk about being important for an exercise program that is sensitive to brain health and then it got me into the gym. And when I was in high school, I joined a gym across from my high school, started weightlifting, watching personal trainers. We can go into that later, but essentially kick-started my personal health and an interest in fitness. And with that fitness, that is cognitively enhanced, meaning that I wasn't on an exercise bike watching the news or staring into space. I was cognitively engaged in that program. Since then, Dance Dance Revolution has been present um, among a lot of research contexts in neural rehabilitation in older adults. Um, It's not really that accessible anymore. You can't just get it off the shelf as much as you could previously, (laughs) but it's really paved the way for a whole industry of active video gaming or extra gaming. And it has spun off also clinical or serious extra gaming, games that are used for health in clinical contexts, such as some of the solutions we use at the Pacific Brain Health Center.
1: Yeah, and for the listeners who are like, wait, why are we starting off the conversation about a video game? Uh, this all makes sense. So, you know, in reading about your story and getting a chance to get to know you over the last year or so, as we've been introduced by our mutual friend, Dr. Shona Patel, who's a regenerative medicine doctor here in Los Angeles, uh, who's been on the podcast before. We'll link to that. Um, I got a chance to see how, you know, your struggle as a child, especially with weight, fitness and being sedentary you found something you found something that created joy inside of you and that's actually really related to a big part of what you teach right now you know we'll start off with the basics and we'll talk about what a brain health coach is and some of the science of it but you found something passionate that you that got you excited to move something that you enjoyed and i think that's such an important thing as simple as it sounds this video game was the thing that got you started that was ultimately the thing that started your journey down this pathway of Understanding the power of really what exercise can do for the brain. Yeah, so let's start there Let's start off with the basics, you know, we've done so many episodes on the power of exercise, but as a refresher Tell us why exercise is so important and what it does for the brain
0: Yeah, and there's been an explosion of research and media coverage about this I'd like to say that the mainstream popularity around exercise in the brain was really kickstarted by the book spark by dr. John Rady ever grateful for the work he's done in popularizing that. In 2018, the second most popular TED Talk uh, in that year was Dr. Wendy Suzuki talking about exercise in the brain and uh, a lot of mainstream coverage and uh, you know in New York Times and Medium covering, you know, and boosting these posts on exercise in the brain. It's become very popular. And that's amazing because it's also jumping on the or kind of, you know, following the coattails of neuroplasticity research, showing that the brain can change. I think this audience has been very well uh, presented that information, right? We used to think uh, our brains were fixed. We were taught in high
1: school that yes. we have a certain amount of brain cells. We'll never, it's all downhill from there. Yep. And it turns
0: out that's not true. Exactly, neuroplasticity. So the brain's ability to functionally and or structurally change over time in response to experiences. And so the there's different levels in which exercise can affect the brain. Those three levels for this conversation are the micro level, the very small level that includes neurons and neurotransmitters and uh, blood flow, we'll get into that. The macro level, which looks at the brain as a whole organ and looks at the structure, the function and the connectivity of it. And then the the behavioral aspect. This would be uh, mental health outcomes, outcomes in cognition, and then outcomes in actually adhering to exercise, which is a behavior itself, which is a big challenge for many, including myself. right? So let's start with the micro level. The micro level uh, in that area, the most popular mechanisms are, well, we'll start with the first one, increased blood flow. When you exercise, there is an increase of blood flow. That crosses the blood-brain barrier. Your brain has a lot of blood flow inputs. It has blood vessels. It has capillaries. It's very well vascularized. So when you exercise, there's more blood flow uh, delivered to the brain. As uh, there's something called the SED principle, specific adaptation on imposed demand, if that occurs enough, more blood vessels and capillaries start to develop. A process called angiogenesis, angio relating to the cardiovascular system, genesis relating to the creation of. And it's amazing because to generate more vasculature in the brain is an amazing ability. That's at the micro level. Then there's the release of proteins, hormones, Etc. chemicals, we'll get into neurotransmitters, but BDNF or brain derived neurotrophic factor is a protein that is expressed with exercise. And most of the spotlight has been around aerobic exercise and its ability to do this. It's not just aerobic exercise that's good for the brain. And I think people present that exercise, you know, creates more blood flow. It creates BDNF that facilitates neurogenesis or the creation of new neurons. And then we usually stop there. But we can go much deeper into it. And in fact, research is showing there's much more to this. Not only are there different mechanisms and the different effects of different types of exercise and perhaps additional or differential benefits when adding cognitive load, we'll get into all that, but at the basic level, blood flow in the expression of growth factors like BDNF occur. There's other growth factors like VEGF or vascular endothelial growth factor that accommodates the angiogenesis process. And then both of those combined leading to or facilitating neurogenesis. Once again, that creation of new neurons, new brain cells in the brain. So those are the, some of the micro level changes. And then there's neurotransmitter based changes, changes in dopamine, serotonin, acetylcholine. We could go on and on describing those and how certain elements of an exercise program might facilitate one more than the other. Perhaps there's certain research coming out to suggest that. Um, But essentially, it is a smoothie, a beneficial smoothie that's going on at the micro level uh, where if you went to Jamba Juice or any trendy smoothie place, right? I'm not saying Jamba Juice is the best one, but I would (laughs) say that uh, you would get a smoothie with different ingredients. And that's exactly what happens at the micro level. There's a smoothie of a bunch of different things that make it beneficial at the micro level.
1: Yeah, and, and it's really all to say that we, for... Since modern exercise movement has been around in all its different forms, the primary emphasis has been on weight loss. Yes. And the primary emphasis is around how you look. And really, when you look at the emerging and the science that's been completed and the emerging science on exercise and brain health, it's really about how you feel on the inside and how you think and its degree of also its protective layer of helping us maybe minimize some of this cognitive decline. Let's talk about that for a second. What do we know about in that category?
0: So we know that more exercise and higher levels of cardiovascular fitness, higher levels of physical activity, they decrease our chances of cognitive decline. They decrease our chances of developing dementia. Even if your genes say, hey, you're at a high risk for dementia, You may stave it off, or you may develop it seven years later instead of right then and there, right? So exercise has been found to be extremely beneficial for staving off cognitive decline.
1: Like not just like extremely beneficial, but like way more beneficial than any drug that we know that's out there. Yes. It, it, it's at to that degree it has an
0: effect. Yeah, so people love the title like pharmaceutical companies hate this intervention because they can't recreate it. It's exercise. <laughs> it's, it's, it's been called a poly pill because it does so much at so many different levels, not just neurobiologically, but metabolically to the endocrine system, to psychology. It's amazing what it can do, especially when you have the right exercise prescription. So when it comes to preventing cognitive decline, the earlier you start, the better. So lifelong physical activity and lifelong exercise will help you uh, than if you just started five years before you might get dementia, but it's also never too late. And you've, you know, for many guests you've had, there's a lot of research suggesting the symptoms or the neurodegeneration that might precede cognitive decline happens in midlife. Right, or it can be found at midlife, or there's risk factors. We know that to be true. The interesting thing about exercise and preventing cognitive decline is that the World Health Organization, while they're not the Institute for Functional Medicine, it's the World Health Organization, and they are really strict about the research they pay attention to. Exercise is so good for preventing cognitive decline, it is at the top of their list in terms of evidence, weight, and recommendations, so evidence-based recommendations for preventing cognitive decline. But interestingly enough, when we have conversations around brain health, when we talk to patients at the Pacific Brain Health Center, when I just casually discuss brain health with people about in the world, right, it is usually the last thing that is emphasized or considered in relation to brain health. Even
1: from their practitioners often. It's not like, okay. That's right. It's like, hey, maybe this drug, or now a little bit of like some dietary stuff, eat your fat, have your fish oil, et cetera. But we don't emphasize exercise enough, which is a big part of why we're having this podcast here is to show in terms of interventions, if you care and you pay attention to, if you you are listening to this podcast and you are wanting to hold off on eventual cognitive decline and minimize it, if you have any concerns about Alzheimer's, which is, such a pervasive uh, disease that's there, or other forms of uh, dementia, like this is your friend in helping fight those things. It's your
0: best friend. It's your it's best, your best friend. friend. And I talked to so many people that have really, you know, gotten to the weeds about a nutrition program, which is awesome, but are just walking or not exercising. And it's really unfortunate, it bothers me actually. I, I feel like it's it's sort of a crime. It's like we have this massive epidemic of cognitive decline and mental health issues exercises at the top of the list but then why is the mainstream not adhering to that and I I, there's a lot of reasons but I think a majority of the brain health messages if I could add up percentage of them percentages of them maybe 80 to 90 percent of them are nutritional and like may, probably less than 10 percent are exercise oriented
1: so let's talk about that for a second because actually I think that this is at the crux of it is mm-hmm. that exercise is not is is not always perceived in people's eyes as fun right right? yeah and this is a key part of your message and what you guys teach over at the pacific uh brain center Mm -hmm. is that this is about joy and having the joy with it and finding that version of joy because immediately we say exercise people think gym now gym can be part of it and we'll break down the different types of you know workouts that are there but that's only one example, right? There can be other forms of so exercise yeah. that are there and they all can support brain health in a little bit of a different way from one another. So, you, know, you had mentioned uh, in another podcast, um, an interesting study talking about the benefits received to the body and the brain from the level of enjoyment that somebody had with, uh, I think it was a workout that they were doing well, or? Yeah,
0: so the, the study that I was referring to was, I, I believe it was a study with children. And two of the 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 two most common populations uh, that are studied in regards to exercise in the brain are older adults and children. Um, I actually started with an interest in pediatrics, working with kids on, on the spectrum, um, and also working with kids with ADHD. But now my primary interest in practice is working with older adults. But that's where the two biggest populations are are studied. Um, And one study was comparing, it was actually referenced by Dr. Adele Diamond, who is probably one of the foremost researchers in executive functions, which we can define executive functions, but it's a group or a family of very important cognitive functions that. Uh, seem to be related to the prefrontal cortex as well as other brain networks include things like planning, organizing, complex attention, divided attention, working or short-term memory, these types of, of skills. And so there's a debate that's really heated in the research of these researchers that are perpetuating that aerobic exercise is the best form of exercise for brain health and executive functions. And Dr. Adele Diamond coming back and arguing and saying well, some of that data is a bit skewed or not interpreted properly, or the effects, the effect sizes aren't as significant as reported. And it's not just about blood flow and BDNF or hippocampal volumes, which we'll also talk about, this hippocampus, that area of your brain responsible for learning and memory. It's also about the factors that aren't so measurable. Cognitive demand, is this a constantly challenging and evolving uh, practice of, of motor and cognitive skills? enjoyment right and we'll we'll go into some of those other variables but enjoyment uh in that context she referenced studies that had taken children and put them in a taekwondo class and one group wanted to learn it enjoyed it the other group did not want to learn it did not want to be there did not enjoy it the group that did not enjoy it got worse executive functions on the outcome the group that did enjoy it got better executive functions on the outcome so i think enjoyment mediates a lot of cognitive outcomes uh, and we need to consider that. It's interesting because so much of the brain and exercise research is perpetuated by animal studies in which one of the most common forms is forced wheel running, which some of the, the criticisms could be, well, the cortisol in that animal being forced to wheel run, eh, but th- of course there's still benefits, right? But I think it's interesting, especially when you know we have this culture of, of parents forcing kids into sports they may not want to do, us going to the gym when we may not want to do it. Enjoyment's a huge aspect of that it's very important i I still think there's a posse of research on that but i think everyone would agree it's probably better to enjoy the intervention than to to be stressed by it
1: yeah especially long term exactly and and really the takeaway is everybody's felt like doing something long term because they think it's going to help them lose weight or get fit but then they're not having fun in the process which means they're more likely to not keep it up and potentially they may not be getting all the benefits from it
0: Um, as as well or or focusing on the outcome of weight loss which is a number how they look how they feel in regards to their weight their body image and not focusing on just how they feel mentally psychologically cognitively after a workout and people may get down on themselves or not feel their sharpest and that exercise in any form a, a myriad of forms actually is accessible to them at any time for the most part usually at at no cost or low cost, right? And so if we focus on how we feel, that is a good behavioral strategy to therefore uh, increase the chances that we will adhere to an exercise program. And there's been uh, a research paper um, suggesting that acute bouts or short bouts of exercise increase certain types of executive functions and that will therefore increase the chances that we adhere to healthy behaviors uh, including exercise, but also including dietary choices. So it's a vicarious cycle. It, of course, can be a vicious cycle, but ideally, it's a vicarious one. So I think most people are here that they should be exercising lifelong. They compare themselves to that, and if they're not doing it, they are a failure. And therefore, if they're, is it they're, you know, how how can they make up for a lifelong a life without exercise? Or how can they say, oh, I'm only walking? How can I? get to that point that experts or sages on the stage are recommending I should be at, right? This person's exercising all the time, they're ripped, I'll never be like that. They compare themselves, right? But if we look at the, just the short-term benefits, and this is true for many health behaviors. You, you had BJ Fogg with Tiny Habits on the podcast recently. I think this is, this is part of his philosophy is focus on the small steps. And if the small steps also have a nice neurotransmitter cocktail uh, of success and pleasure to it, it's likely it will maintain. Right.
1: It's so true. And when we look around the world and we look at especially like blue zones and places, you know, blue zones are often societies that, uh, have like live in regions that are very hilly. Yeah. And the exercise and the movement, they're not going to the gym. It's just regularly worked into their routine. Now they may be doing some version of like, uh, um, some version of like levels of fitness or. Right you know, like bowling or like- uh, like Leisure time
0: activities. Leisure time activities. You you definitely don't think of Blue Zones doing CrossFit.
1: You don't think of doing CrossFit. And
0: that doesn't mean CrossFit would be bad for the brain, right? I think there's a a lot to be said about the translation from Blue Zones to what we do. I think people get fixated, like, well, I have to- you know, replicate exactly what those people in blue zones are doing, but physical activity and exercise are a part of it. And, exactly. and in fact, the nun studies that have been referenced a lot in the, these theories of cognitive reserve, um, you don't think of nuns doing CrossFit Either, although that's a really interesting, uh, entertaining <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> visualization, is, is nuns doing CrossFit? But I've spoken to some individuals that have uh, grown up around nuns or in Catholic schools, and they said actually they you know put on their sneakers and they exercise intentionally. It's not just walking. Um, what forms of exercise nuns do? I, I'm not entirely sure. I'd like to learn more about that. But we will talk about many different forms of exercise. But most certainly, if you are exercising, you are not losing. You're not losing unless you absolutely hate it or it's causing this this onset of tons of stress hormones uh, because of overtraining or you, you absolutely hate it, but I think even then there's arguments that exercise is good, right? you can't really lose
1: so to zoom out, you know so far we've been talking about you know the importance of exercise for preventing cognitive decline, but also in the short term our mood on a day-to-day basis, our yeah. mental health, so many factors that are there, right? The yeah. studies around exercise and depression, so many aspects that are there. Uh, it's ability to help us learn better, learn yeah. quicker, right? Yeah. There's so much that's there. Then we went into a little bit about the fact that like, traditionally we've always looked at exercise as like a weight loss thing. Mm-hmm. We don't associate a lot of positive reinforcement feelings towards it, it's considered something as like dreading, I don't wanna do it. And a lot of people are not aware of how things like, we'll talk a little bit more about it, but Zumba and other classes like that can be even tennis, ping pong, as you've talked about, can be a part of our exercise routine. Absolutely. So let's talk about like, what is a prescription? So we'll, we'll break down the different types of exercise in a second, but let's first talk about what is a prescription if we're going to use exercise. And if our doctors were going to give us a real prescription for exercise to support our brain health, what would that look like?
0: So the American College of Sports Medicine, like the national guidelines for exercise, and this includes brain health as well as a bunch of other outcomes uh, that are more physically oriented, uh, is 150 minutes a week of moderate to vigorous activity. And usually they'll throw in moderate to vigorous aerobic activity, getting your heart rate up uh, per week. So not many people think about it in minutes, but if we convert that to hours, that's about two and a half hours a week of moderate to vigorous exercise. I think the next question is, well, what about other modalities and what is moderate to vigorous and how do I measure that? Um, They do say that there is additional benefits for resistance training, And neuromotor training, which I think is a category that we can give different vernacular to. Perhaps that is synonymous to motor training or coordinative training or cognitively demanding training or skill-based training. We'll go into that later. But 150 minutes of moderate to vigorous intensity of aerobic exercise with additional benefits for these other categories. Uh, The way to measure, moderate to vigorous. There's all sorts of uh, heart rate max formulas and percentages of that max. We're not going to get into that because there's a lot of disagreements about those calculations. And practically most people aren't going to have that available to them. They're not going to be listening to this and writing down these calculations. Although we can post in the show notes how to get to that. Uh, For example, 60 to 80% of your maximum heart rate, if you can calculate that. Um, There is a simpler way. It's called an RPE scale or a rate of perceived exertion. It's just how hard you feel you're working, how much effort you're putting forward. It is one out of 10. Very simple. There's other scales like the Borg scales are like eight to 17 and weird numbers like that. But one out of 10 is the easiest to comprehend for most people. 10 being the absolute hardest. You're not even to have a discussion or talk during that level of intensity. Right now, we're maybe at a one, maybe a two in terms of physical intensity right now. Very very light, we're, not, we're having a steady conversation, we can talk, we're not exercising at all. And so generally speaking, uh, it would be maybe a six to eight out of 10 on that scale that would correlate to a moderate to vigorous intensity. And research has been done to correlate that to percentages of heart rate max as well. So I think it's a safe guideline for people.
1: So basically, if we would put the two of those together, we're thinking twice a week, we wanna be at a six. Right, that's if a good way like, to look at it. Yeah,
0: if somebody would look at two it two to three times a week, maybe two to three times a week. We want to be at a six. And there's some research to recommend, depending on the person's cognitive status, because a person with you know normal healthy aging uh, and, and a person with mild cognitive impairment are going to have different exercise prescriptions, respond to it differently. But some research is recommending hey, more shorter, frequent bouts might be better than longer, infrequent bouts. Yeah. That's not always true, uh, of course. The longer, more infrequent bouts are still going to be very beneficial and sometimes preferred in certain circumstances. But yeah, generally speaking, if we said, hey, let's do 30 minutes because a lot of people just don't want to spend 60 minutes working out. And especially with digital offerings, most of them are shorter, like 20 to 30 minutes. I think it's more practical to look at shorter bouts right now. Um, Let's say five times a week of 30 minutes, that gets you to that 150. Now, there's still additional benefits if you get to 300 minutes as well. Um, there's still benefits if you're just at 75 minutes. There's a duration intensity trade-off as well. So if it's 75 minutes, but it's, it's higher intensity, maybe there's a certain dose response there that maybe isn't equivalent, but still very beneficial.
1: So let's take this on an even more practical level. You know, at the Pacific Brain Center, you get so many people that come in who really don't have any movement in their life in terms of intentional periods of time where they, let's say, exercising,
0: right? Or they do and it's just walking.
1: They, they, exactly. It's just
0: walking. Which is not bad, by the way. That's been correlated to a lot of brain health outcomes as well. Totally.
1: And there's this thing of like, okay, I get it. I believe the science. I believe you guys. I know how much, you know, movement, intentional movement, working out, exercise can support my brain health and my body, you know, because that was the premise of our broken brain docuseries is that what you do to your body you do to your brain, mm-hmm. right? And, and They're connected
0: last time I checked. They're connected. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and there's this, whether it's fear, or whether it's guilt, because they haven't been doing anything. And Guilty as charged, right? I mean, yeah, absolutely. Regardless of what age they are, right? Yeah. I've had a lot of guilt associated with that, and uh, in the past. And they're starting from just square one, right? Yeah. What are, and everybody's different, everybody's goals are different that are there. What is a way to think about it? Because sometimes when we talk about, you can measure it this way, or you could do this. So they hear, you know, people hear like 300 minutes in a, in a week, every single week. It can feel like a lot.
0: It's like a measuring stick. And you're, you know, you're, you're measuring yourself against that.
1: You're measuring parameter. yourself against that. and You're not even sure yeah. if you can make it on that level. Mm-hmm. So for people who come in, who are just like, I believe it, I, I'm getting it now. And I, and I get it. How can I start to incorporate this into what I look at? What are the things before you give them the exercises? What is it that you help them understand about? Exercise in general.
0: Well a lot of what we've covered so far in terms of the the basic science I will repeat to them per their level of prior understanding and knowledge about exercise in the brain and at a level that is Understandable not so much. Oh look what I know, you know exercise is so important You should feel guilty for not doing it But having a you know health, you know a behavior change friendly conversation around it to perhaps increase motivation and readiness to change because of the different context around it. So I often find when the context is around brain health, um, and, and yes, you could argue that wanting to prevent dementia can be fear-based, but in many aspects of this conversation, it is positive motivation as well.
1: Right, because you wanna do it because you wanna be around for your kid's graduation, or you yes, wanna be around Yes, it doesn't for your always have kids, to be
0: fear-based. Right? And, and sometimes when it is, you also have to help reframe that because I, I believe that lifestyle interventions that are achieved in parallel with anxiety. If you're doing them, that's great, but you don't want to, you know, it, it, you want it to be a lifestyle. You don't want to be anxious with the lifestyle. That's right. not a lifestyle. Short term
1: anxiety, short term To get you fear, to do something. Yeah. It's great. Yes. Right? Like I have this reoccurring dream, completely random. <laughs> it happens like three or four times a year, and I'm back in high school, and for whatever reason, I've been left behind. Right? and are, are you
0: are you fat in that dream no okay because i in I mind was a skinny i'm skinny indian so. <laughs> kid in, in high
1: school so that was that was where i was
0: I just wondering if we had the same dream <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> so i wake up I, i'm in the high school everybody's moved on like for some reason i don't know why i've been held back and i wake up in the morning with like a little bit of fear right like shit but then i wake up with this <laughs> trama- then after i realize, okay that was just a dream then i go to like holy shit, my life is amazing and there's still goals and dreams that i have I'm, I'm so lucky i finished high school don't worry you're not held back and sometimes a little short dose of fear to get you like a little kick in the butt is okay
0: cortisol is great i mean there's some great experts like dr huberman or even bj fogg that could talk about this uh even further i know there's a ted talk about the the upside of fear uh, I can't remember who did it, but yeah, it's cortisol as a motivator uh, or as a neurological underpinning of a, of a motivation, right? Like to, to to mild stress. Sure, sure, So, um, but I digress. I, but when I educate people about exercise in the brain, their motivation for exercise does change. And yes, it can be a combination of that fear and anxiety based motivation, uh, but I will talk to people that just had no idea or they heard it was beneficial, but it was presented as a side effect oh, did you know that because you're exercising is also good for your brain? Cool. You know, thanks, Snapple fact, right? It's not really presented as this really evidence-based modality that could hopefully really move the needle for people, right? And when you present it as such and you give a a practical uh, stepwise, I don't want to say formula or protocol. That's a very, I I don't like those words, but you give them a, a process, a path forward. They can see that path forward. They're more likely to take that step. So I have had conversations with individuals that have some cognitive impairment. They're in their 70s. Of course, it's a 28-year-old millennial talking to them and telling them how to improve their brain health. So, you know, there's some of that bias there. But, you know, we're we're usually there on good terms. And but there is some like, okay, what what are you gonna tell me? Right. Mm -hmm. And I educate them about the benefits of exercise in the brain. We might have a single conversation in some individuals. This is not true for anybody, I might check up check up with them or check in with them maybe six months later and they've been going to the YMCA like five days a week and they're like motivated and they enjoy it right so I've had those complete flips I've also had individuals that maybe all they could do is add five minutes more to their walking routine or walk a little bit more briskly Uh, or I've had conversations where they were doing aerobic exercise but they thought that was the only thing that was good for their brain And then I talk to them about more cognitively demanding or skill-based modalities. And I bring up dance. And oftentimes, I'm talking to couples. And some of the most uh, meaningful events in my career have been, we can dance again. And they have this like sparkle in their eye like they used to to dance. And now they can dance again for brain health. And they love that. So there's a lot of ways those conversations have gone and can go. Um, And I've had people that just don't want to change. They're not ready to change. I just... Give some information and maybe set it up for another conversation in the near future and say, look, what you're doing is great. Keep doing what you're doing and let's see how you're doing in three months. And we come back to that and maybe they're ready for more intensity or more duration or different modalities. So that conversation can go a lot of different ways. And I I think behavior change is a mechanism. There's no one right way. I think like, oh, we'll add five minutes and add five minutes and add one to that RPE scale and just, you know, keep going like that. Um, but I don't know if that's always the right answer, but I think there is an answer for everybody. You know,
1: we're recording this in the in the midst of, uh, you know, social distancing. Um, there's been a mental health crisis that's been looming in this country well before the coronavirus pandemic, but it's been brought to the forefront because there's so many more people that are struggling with their mental health because- yes plans changing unemployment Mm -hmm. rates as high as they are uncertainty and anxiety with the news or or information that's out there um what do you tell them what do you tell individuals who relate to that about what role exercise can play in the midst of a a pandemic
0: yeah it's all the same people i've been coaching just everyone's experiencing a lot more stress and isolation and like you said perhaps perhaps mental health issues or or symptoms um I I think the emphasis, it's a lot more flexible. It's not as rigid as a prescription perhaps. It's really a combination of whatever you can do, right? Or maybe let's emphasize some of the softer elements like enjoyment. Um, I think what it has done is really shed a light on the convenience factor where there's this concept of self-efficacy, being able to do it on your own. Right, and build up the internal skills necessary to perhaps remain consistent with the behavior like exercise, or at least have the, the tools and knowledge to do so. I think now that people are more, you know, they're, they're stuck at home and they're not able to go to the gym and maybe work with a, a group fitness class or a personal trainer in person. Of course, those are still available remotely. But I think the onset of digital resources is helpful for perhaps promoting self-efficacy and I have found that people are more active on their own now than they were previously mm. um, I also think it's great because while the gym is very important I want all my friends and colleagues in the fitness industry to thrive and survive this ability to work out on your own at home is really important. I think it's a really important skill. It's kind of like having to go to the dentist to brush your teeth every time versus being able to brush your teeth at home it's this critical, uh, neurobiological hygiene that people are developing better skill sets for now.
1: Right, because it does. It's we want to again peel back away the idea that it's like a gym is like, you know, in the early days of, of um, you know, even church, it was yeah. like prayer happens in the church. It's not real yeah. if it's happening outside, right? The, sure the clergy is the pathway and the vehicle to get to God. There's a lot
0: of shared elements there with, with fitness, I think. Right. And so
1: it's great. It's good to have gyms. It's good to have these other things, but we want people to be able to incorporate it because if we can find and have a lot of tools in our toolbox, then we can tap into that tool at at different time periods and we can have the variety of those different tools that are there.
0: And also things that used to be very expensive, um, like personal training or certain modalities of exercise, it, it may have been difficult to access those, are now becoming more accessible and scalable. And that might include more niche fitness modalities that maybe incorporate more skills. Um, we can talk later about things like virtual reality and, and VR fitness uh, that I fully embrace as, as still that that gamer that I am um, that I'm more reliant on during these times. So. I'm rather uh, positive and optimistic about what's going on with the fitness industry for the consumer. Yeah. I have a lot of empathy uh, for the industry, the fitness industry, sure. but everyone's being forced to have their digital strategy uh, right now, right?
1: And and you know, mostly we've been talking about people who had to have pivot. But I think the thing is that if you weren't working out or yeah. had an exercise routine and this pandemic has been stressful on you, mm-hmm. has created anxiety, has created a little bit of worry, there's, n- It's now is even the best time in the world to be able to step into this, to pay attention to this yeah. conversation and to look at what does it look like to find a personalized routine that's there for you, that makes you excited, creates joy and has you want to do it, not thinking of exercise as a secondary benefit to the brain, but as a primary intervention to have you feel better, sleep better, think more clearly, be less anxious, feel more connected to individuals potentially depending on how the-
0: And I also, I think the opportunity, and I use this phrase carefully, self-prescribe exercise um, based on how you feel. So one of the concerns I have heard is, well, because I'm not in the gym, I'm not working out as hard, as intense, Uh, looking towards all these studios popping up that really have a focus on high intensity which is and can be beneficial but i think there's quite an obsession around HIIT training and high intensity interval training right now and there's been quite a a, a few systematic reviews and meta-analyses demonstrating that maybe moderate intensity might be better for producing uh, improved outcomes uh, when we're talking about depressive symptoms and and people with depression or maybe a certain frequency uh, such as maybe a higher frequency might be better for instance Um, if we have anxiety, maybe it's time to opt for a more mind-body approach, like a restorative yoga, instead of doing that high-intensity interval training class. Now, I'm not poo-pooing those classes, but our society is rather obsessed with them right now. And I do feel that people tend to think that if they're not adhering to this high-intensity interval training, they have failed.
1: Or that it's not a real workout. I know for a long time, because I didn't grow up working out, I played a little bit sports here and there, but I never really had a routine. Then, I, when I became an entrepreneur and I dropped out of college, I was just on the computer all the day with bad posture, not working out, just building companies. Sure. And it was great for my bank account, but it wasn't good for my body. Yeah. And then, when I started a workout routine, there was the feeling of if I wasn't like drenched in sweat, then it wasn't a real workout. Right. And then the switch happened as I started to get deeper into the space of functional medicine and looking at a lot of the experts that you've talked about and mm-hmm. getting the chance to meet people like yourself. There was the idea that the primary role of these interventions is really around like the whole body feeling. It's not that if I don't sweat profusely, it doesn't count. And it's not real and it's not a workout. I can still enjoy those things. So I would say since the pandemic, I haven't been working out intensely, right? I do right. the seven minute workout from like the New York, New York times. That, and that. that's
0: high intensity. Cause it's very, yeah. It's yeah. a sh-
1: very short period of time, but it's a, a very short workout. I really like it. I heard about it first from Dr. Mark Hyman, and then I've been playing a lot of tennis. And that's awesome. pretty much it. Yeah. I, I, did a, I did a push-up challenge with my buddies. <laughs> we, did a, we did this uh, 100 push-up challenge you know, on the side, but outside of that, I have not been going and working out at that same level, but I actually feel
0: really good. I that's feel good. really good and my brain feels good, and um, it still feels like I'm doing something. That's, Im- right? that's important. And I think, you know, what are your goals? And a lot of people are in survival mode right now. So maybe that's enough to survive right now. And maybe the goals you had, you know, before COVID-19 are not the same goals you have right now, but it all goes with this idea of a self-prescribed or a facilitated precision medicine approach using exercise, ideally for brain health. but. We could talk about you know, inflammatory biomarkers. Should your exercise prescription be different based on those, right? And the the intensity conversation could parallel that. I've talked to a lot of functional medicine doctors that share the perspective that if you have a really, uh, if you have a lot of cir- a high level of circulating inflammatory markers like CR- CRP, for instance, or IL-6, you probably shouldn't be doing primarily high-intensity interval training. Uh, you might wanna suggest more mind-body or lower-intensity modalities primarily and then kind of alternate as time goes on, for instance. So, you know, this can be based on your feelings, it can be based on your cognition, it can be based on your your motivation, your readiness to change, it can be based on biology, measured or otherwise. So that's sort of what I want to promote for people is this this self-prescribed and facilitated, because I, I want to speak to the the practitioners, the health coaches, the functional medicine doctors, the personal trainers out there too. But both parties play a role in this, is using exercise in a precision medicine context. Because once again, I I wanna keep bringing it up, just like functional medicine has looked at this, this very detailed and nuanced long list of things to do for nutrition, let's give exercise that same treatment. And let's not look at it as a a side effect for brain health and just something oh just do it it's good for you and uh, I, I don't want to get on my pedestal too much with that as you know I'm very passionate about that concept no no but, but it's an
1: important thing it's like yeah. when we have these distinctions that's when we can have a shift in behavior to get the benefits from the thing that we're talking about so to understand exercise let's break down the the you have this great analogy that you use and you equate sort of. You, you equate exercise and nutrition, yeah. right? And you kind of help people understand it that way. So, talk to us about the three macronutrient ingredients for brain health.
0: Yeah, it's it's a fun metaphor. I'm open to better ones, um, but I think for the purposes of this discussion, uh, we have we can talk about three primary modalities of exercise. The first being aerobic or cardiovascular exercise. The second being resistance or strength training. We can get into the nuances of that, and the third being uh, motor or skill-based. And we can talk about the nuances in that. Each of those categories have their own subcategories. So for example, cardiovascular exercise might have an emphasis on intensity, uh, duration, there's continuous exercise, uh, or there's high intensity intervals. So going up and down and up and down in terms of intensity, or going to a level of intensity and staying there, right? Uh, For resistance training, a lot of people are saying, well, does body weight count? Well, that can develop body weight strength, but what about the importance of external loads, weightlifting, which for many people is challenging during this time. They don't have access to resistance training equipment, but it's something, at at least in terms of the cognition and brain health conversation that is usually missing, it's extremely important and has differential effects when compared to aerobic exercise. Um, In fact, a recent meta-analysis just came out Taking, uh, old, looking at older adults with mild cognitive impairment and ranking the modalities that might be best for global cognition. And resistance training was the first followed by extra gaming, then by aerobic exercise, then by mind-body exercise. So that was really interesting to see. So resistance training is having its moment in research and now and in the past few years, I think the um, plethora of, of research on aerobic exercise came from that aerobics movement and the fact that it's a relatively easier intervention to study, uh, I digress. The third category would be skill-based or motor training, where there's something coordinative or learning Uh, characteristics associated with that modality. So there's uh, that would include mind-body exercises that are usually not higher intensity. Of course, there's there's fitness elements of yoga, right? But mind-body exercise usually relating to lower intensities, things like Tai Chi, Qigong, um, more restorative martial arts, restorative yoga, or yoga that isn't heavily fitness-focused. On the other hand, we have skill-based modalities that are higher intensity, things like sports, martial arts, dance, and each of those usually have some sort of skill element to them, in which if you did not pay attention during those modalities, you would you know, either fail or not participate or get hurt, right? And so those are the three categories. So carbs, fats, proteins, aerobic, resistance, and skill-based. I haven't like said aerobic is like carbs, but <laughs> I, I, I haven't gotten super deep into the metaphor, but I do feel It's just that- a way to understand. Exactly. It, and, and of course, this is not sensitive to like the conversations around ketogenic diets that completely so, dismiss so. carbohydrates. Uh, you know, so I don't want it to fall victim to those those biases or, or viewpoints. Right. And the
1: point of them basically is is that it's an easy way to think of you know that we all
0: need. These three nutrients. These these nutrients, right. But I will say that people do bias themselves in those three categories. Usually they're aerobic people, but not resistance people. Or they're resistance people, and they're in the no sweat club. They don't do aerobics. Or there's people that love their Zumba class, but won't lift weights, right? And that's what I find is people automate their decisions around exercise, which is good for adherence, consistency, motivation, enjoyment, but maybe not conducive for healthy variability. And the reason we talk about healthy variability, wanting maybe you know one third of each of them to be to be general, is that at least in healthier adults, both middle-aged and older, multimodal programs, ones that incorporate more than one modality, seem to be better for preventing cognitive decline than a single modality, shorter intervention. So multimodal, longer interventions seem to be better for this.
1: Yeah, and the 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 way that you often hear it talked about, or even in my my gym that I used to go to here in Santa Monica, 34 North. He would often say, like, I don't run. Yeah. But, okay, great. You don't have to run. But But how do you get that essential
0: aerobic nutrient otherwise? Right. Could it be tennis? Yeah. Could it
1: be something else that's there as another way of getting that in? It doesn't have to be running. That's right. There's a lot of. I hate
0: running personally. I don't like running. I I will get my aerobic load from high intensity format of resistance training as well. So you can layer or stack these variables if you're pressed for time or if you wanted to have some what I call intra-variability. So intra-variability would be taking that workout, whether it's 20, 30, 60 minutes, and changing the variables inside of it. Uh, Extra uh, modality variability would be saying, I do aerobic one day and resistance the next day. Both are good. There's there's ways of tackling this variability conversation uh, in different ways. So if I did 30 minutes of resistance training and on the same day right after did 30 minutes of skill-based training or racquetball or tennis, that would be a multi-component exercise program. So you can do that, and most people do that. That's actually some of the, the, the fundamental Aspects of of circuit training where they incorporate different modalities where you're doing some sort of skill-based speed agility type exercise Then you go to lifting a weight then you go to burpees and you know, it's sort of like that I think there's more research needed to compare that versus well Just doing 30 to 60 minutes of aerobic on one dedicated day versus incorporating modalities inside the workout But you know, there's a lot of ways to win once again
1: Yeah, and laying on back on the idea of uh, creating joy there's a lot of ways to win and there's a lot of ways to incorporate into your life where it doesn't feel like this extra thing. Right. For example, you had this story of, uh, talking to one of the practitioners, I think it was at the clinic about dance yeah. and, uh, and whether or not, you know, uh, it sounds like that from the way that I heard the story was that they are very like, you know, clinical type of person. And you had suggested, would you ever consider, consider dance? And this individual—it oh, uh, was a patient that I oh, had—that was, was
0: actually also a clinician.
1: Okay, a patient yeah. that was also a clinician, but not at the center. Right. Yeah. So, could you tell
0: that story here? So, yeah. So that uh, individual was experiencing cognitive issues, uh, and had come to me because they were very interested in anything they could do to prevent further decline. And if you think of anyone in a position where they're heavily reliant on their intellect. Uh, any evidence of cognitive decline can be immensely stressful for them. So this person had a diagnosis of of mild cognitive impairment and they came to me because they wanted to address the exercise piece. So we worked on uh, structuring their lifestyle to have a multimodal exercise program. So incorporating greater intensity of aerobic exercise via running, Uh, Then there was an an ankle injury, so we backtracked to do more cycling uh, with resistance training. They got a personal trainer to help them with that aspect, and they worked with me one-on-one to incorporate this more cognitive uh, motor intervention, so cognitively enhanced exercise at our center. Um, Simultaneously, I was trying to promote healthy sleep hygiene, uh, as well as adherence to a CPAP as they were diagnosed with, with very mild sleep apnea. And after three months, according to a quick cognitive screener, not a super in-depth co- cognitive re-evaluation, uh, but also combined with their subjective feeling about how they felt cognitively, and their, their baseline for this was speeches and, and speaking and being able to do that fluently and flawlessly, in which they did have trouble with prior to, to seeing me as well as our team, uh, no longer had those issues and no longer had that according to this global assessment of cognition, mild cognitive impairment, and then therefore was considered normal, and subjectively felt a lot better, and has maintained that ever since.
1: And one of the things that you were incorporating in their plan was basically you were like, well, would you consider dance?
0: Right, 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 exactly, so thank you for reminding me. So part of, uh, they they happened to have a brain scan, and in that brain scan, uh, there was a, uh, it, it showed atrophy of the cerebellum, and the cerebellums in the back part of the brain um, it's been referred to as the second brain before the gut stole that title. Uh, and it has 50% of a certain type of the brain's neurons. It's a very neuronally dense area. Um, people have suggested that besides uh, besides coordination and, and motor movement and motor skill learning, it also is responsible for aspects of cognition and emotion. Um, it's a very interesting part of the brain. And so this this brain scan had showed atrophy. And so I had some... Ideas and, and principles in some research, there needs to be more suggesting that coordinative modalities, which the cerebellum seems to be active during coordinative tasks, and, and activities that incorporate skill learning, may address that area. And uh, actually, Dr. Daniel Amen, uh, I learned this from him first when I was like just starting out in this area and reading his books. And he had recommended that. I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. That kind of got me thinking more uh, in this in this area. And and so I had recommended a modality such as dance, and he had never considered it. And I said, well, why wouldn't you consider it? He said, well, I'm not good at it, and I would make a fool of myself. I said, well, let me tell you this. If I said that this might be healthy for your cerebellum, I know that your wife wants to do it. Uh, I know that you don't want to embarrass yourself. What if you did it in your living room via a video twice a week, and you were doing it for your cerebellum and not for your, not to prevent embarrassment. He said, okay, I'll do it. And he started to do that. <laughs> I don't know how much that contributed to, to his improvement, but I think it was a helpful, you know, conversation ar- around uh, a case example of how we might use precision recommendations for exercise for brain health.
1: Yeah, and, and part of that precision recommendation is, is also, there's so many ways of incorporating in movement that a lot of people have never thought about before. Right. And that, that could be part of this trifecta that you're trying to create in your own life to improve your mood, feel better and get the benefits of exercise. It doesn't always have to be, I know I keep on coming back to it, but it's such a key thing, I would say, even for my parents who have, who have moved down to San Diego now and are trying to look for other ways to incorporate movement, yeah. a big part of it has been, Hey, let's incorporate like fun things that are there Yeah. that can still make you feel like you're moving. You don't have to only think of it as going down to the local YMCA.
0: Exactly. And I think right now a lot of people are having, you know, wine sessions or socialization sessions over Zoom. Why not have a like have it outside the context of a fitness class, but like, I don't know, dance with your family or friends or something of that regard, right? Totally. I think there's opportunities for that. Through
1: Zoom. Sure. Right? Or even just outside. Yeah.
0: So, on your own accord, what what have you?
1: Yeah, so w- w- an interesting area. And this was part of a little bit of what you were talking about in the Broken Brain Two docu series. Is you laid out the idea of the potential benefits that we could see when we're combining cognitive and physical training. Yes. So what does that mean, and what would be those benefits?
0: Yeah, it, it's a very uh, interesting aspect of exercise prescription, and I think it's especially relevant. Uh, following the explosion and criticism of the brain training industry where if we look at brain games uh, or apps, there's been a, they, they've really been under fire. There's a couple companies doing it really well uh, in terms of demonstrating far transfer like carryover to real life. Um, you know, Brain HQ does a pretty good job of doing that. Neurotracker does a pretty good job of doing that. But then we have this parallel conversation of exercise being good for the brain. So um, there's a few reasons why we might want to consider combining exercise with cognitive challenges. It is similar to that skill-based conversation. Um, I think before I get into the how, maybe the why might be helpful. There's been some early research in both animals and humans demonstrating that combined exercise modalities. And I will say there's, there's different ways to combine it. There's Getting on an exercise bike for 30 minutes and then sitting down and playing a brain game. That's called sequential combined cognitive physical training. Then there's the simultaneous. The one I'm going to talk about is the simultaneous. The sequential is still beneficial. Like if you wanted to combine, you know, do 30 minutes on the bike and then play a skill uh, or play a sport that's demanding your skills and skill development, that could be great. We'll talk about that. But for the purpose of this conversation, or at least this piece of the conversation, let's talk about simultaneous. So simultaneous would be executing a cognitive and a physical task simultaneously at the same time. This is representative uh, or represented in skill-based modalities. When you are dancing, you are thinking and moving at the same time, right? So people are interested in creating these experiments in a more artificial manner because dance and sports, they're more natural, right? They've been around for All of human existence, most likely, in one form or another. Um, And yes, research has shown beneficial brain health and cognitive outcomes with those modalities for the most part. But when we take artificially created cognitive tasks, uh, like a a cognitive task on a screen or an enriched environment like an obstacle course for rats or in humans where we uh, display that cognitive task on a screen or give them uh, a counting task in their head to perform while they're walking, for instance, there seems to be either equivalent or superior cognitive outcomes with those modalities when compared to exercise and brain training alone. So once again, a a sequential, uh, sorry, a simultaneous execution of these tasks seems to have sometimes a superior cognitive outcome when compared with exercise alone or brain training on an app alone.
1: You're moving your brain and you're moving your body at the same time. Correct. You're pushing your body and you're pushing your brain. Yeah. Right. You're mildly stressing them both out. Yes, exactly. You're stressing your body through exercise in a mild way and you're stressing your brain out to try to figure something out and doing them together could provide some benefits. Right.
0: And, And so some research studies show equivalent outcomes which like, okay, if it's equivalent, let me just do the easier one, right? But c- ones that incorporate cognitive outcomes might be more fun or might be more motivating or might be more social. And there's, uh, it might have an enhanced effect on mental health. More research is needed there, but there's some thoughts that that might happen. Uh, there's an evolutionary theory behind this called the adaptive capacity model that was presented by Dr. David Reichlin. Uh, I think maybe three issues ago in Scientific American, he wrote an article with his colleague, uh, Dr. Alexander, that was on the front page about exercise in the brain. Um, and in that last part of the article, the last two or three paragraphs, he's talking about this concept. And he is an evolutionary neurobiologist and presents this adaptive capacity model that cave people will be gender neutral here that hunted. Uh, had to use their brain and bodies at the same time. So they weren't running on a treadmill to catch the prey and they weren't writing an essay to catch the prey. They had to use their brains and the body, their bodies at the same time. So they'd have to go from slow speeds to fast speeds to medium speeds to outlast the, the prey of interest. They had to use their sensory systems, their eyes and their ears. They had to use their spatial navigation systems to uh, navigate the environment. They had to use their executive functioning skills to adapt to where that prey was going, reaction time. So Hunting back then was a very cognitively and simultaneously physically demanding uh, activity. And we needed to do it to survive. So a lot of the evolutionary theories about how the brain grew or evolved comes out of nutritional principles. Like, oh, we just started eating more protein or we just started running, but not a whole lot of uh, light is shed on, well, actually, maybe it grew because it was stressed while receiving the growth factors and the blood flow and the electrical activity that comes from exercise while simultaneously getting the direct challenges of cognitive uh, direct to the brain while hunting, if mm. that makes sense.
1: Yeah, and, and not to mention the coordination that you'd need for language development, right? right? Language development, communicating, with, communicating other people, with other people
0: to figure out how you're gonna hunt. It, it sounds most similar to sports now, Right. Hunting right now is we we've created technology that makes it easier and probably not as <laughs> physically and cognitively demanding. Not that I'm promoting or um, you know uh, dismissing hunting as a good modality, um, but I think it is very interesting that maybe we evolved this way and our our very human separatist minds separated exercise and in intellectual stimulation uh, in our society. But maybe it's time to bring that back, and I think I. You know, I got a hint of that with Dance Dance Revolution in my childhood, and that's continued to evolve. And I think uh, more, especially with connected fitness and technology, this is going to become easier to participate in.
1: So, for the people that are listening at home, what's another example, separate from sports, of ways that we can have this a simultaneous right. the benefit from doing this simultaneous at home? If it's not if it's not sports, what could be another way that we get? potentially the benefits of that. Right so
0: now. I believe that the solutions are pretty limited. We need more of them. This is a call to action for more of these solutions out there that are more consumer facing. There are some that are evolving and, and being presented. Um, I will say that the easiest way to access these things is through skill-based modalities, like some sort of sport, like some sort of dance, like some sort of martial art, or even finding ways of increasing the cognitive load of your workout. So earlier we repre- uh, we presented an RPE scale, this one out of 10 scale. Well, there's actually something that sounds very fancy called a NASA task load index, like space NASA, right? Um, and it actually presents these different one out of 10 scales for things like effort. Uh, did you think you performed successfully? But one of my favorite aspects of that scale is cognitive load, how cognitively demanding was the task or the exercise modality you just participated in, 10 being the most cognitively demanding, one being the least. So we can self-assess, let's say, let's look at our exercise program uh, on a weekly basis. How would you rate the cognitive demand of your exercise program right now on a scale of 1 to 10? Once again, 1 being the least, 10 being the most. If you're saying, well, it's probably like a 3, I'm walking, I'm watching the news while I'm on an exercise bike, so I'm kind of spacing out. Yes, I'm paying attention to the news channel, but it's not necessarily that cognitively stimulating, um, then it's probably like a 2 or a 3. But if you're playing tennis and dance and you're doing martial arts, it's more like a 10 or an 8 or something like that, right? Um, Unless if that's a sport that you've been doing for a really long time and you you. kind of adapted to that. Thank you, so if you've already mastered it, we have to look at um, skill learning and how motor skill learning happens. So there's three different phases uh, of skill learning. There's the cognitive phase, in which cognitive load is the highest. There's the associative phase, which is kind of medium. And there's the autonomous phase, where it's kind of reached automaticity and it's its lowest cognitive load. So everyone chases this concept of mastery. I would say beginners win. And you know, don't be and it's interesting because most people don't want to participate in these skill-based modalities because they think they won't be good at it. It's sort of equivalent to the comparison of your weight and your body image. People are comparing their skill sets. I'm not good at dance, therefore I'm not, I'm gonna, not gonna do, do it. it. I look like a fool, so I'm not gonna do it. But that phase, that struggle, like Dr. Huberman was talking about, that struggle phase of learning is what's most effortful and likely what's going to facilitate functional and hopefully structural neuroplastic change. So I thank you for bringing that up because I hope this uh, facilitates or motivates the pursuance of novel tasks. Because when we look at cognitive, uh, cognitive health and we look at theories um, that, that like the nun studies perpetuated, right? Uh, what is it like to have good cognitive reserve? We often talk about social engagement, enjoyment, novel experiences and learning. But what if exercise captured all of those elements, mm. right? What if that was the case? I think you would get more bang for your buck. Yeah,
1: and especially, you know, pre-COVID flying a lot, being on the airplane and sitting sitting next to people who are like doing Sudoku, right? I right. always be sitting next to somebody who's doing Sudoku and it's like power through it, you know, going through it like very quickly has mastered the ability to like look through it. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, but it's again, stimulating. It's stimulating. And it's something that became very much a trend because it was being written up as being something to keep your brain young, you know, yep. do this stuff. But if you're really good at that task, maybe you're not getting that, those benefits anymore compared to, or the same amount of benefits compared to just, you've never done a Zumba class before, going and trying to do a Zumba yeah, class.
0: Yeah, I anymore. think the question would be, are those benefits psychologically and potentially cognitively coming from the, the modality itself or is it coming from the fact that it's just novel? And there's effort in learning involved. I would like to think that when you incorporate movement, that is, those benefits are perhaps enhanced or further pronounced. Um, but it could just be that it's learning, right? And when we retire, for instance, the intellectual demands, the educational demands, maybe aren't there. And but people that encourage lifelong learning, right? You continue with adult education, and you continue with, continue with lifelong learning. That's great. But let's let's physicalize it a little bit let's, let's apply that to exercise. I think if we did that, um, people would just enjoy their movement more. And if they were on this quest for learning and novel experiences through movement, um, I don't want to get, you know, all soft, but the world would seem like a better place if we were all doing that and coming from that place. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. So put it together in a way of like a few
1: key takeaways for people in this conversation. Um, whether that's a a summary or whether you just want to focus on the, the points around just like exercise incorporating that, but I'm sure people ask you, and you've been on a lot of other podcasts before, and you teach a lot, you know, what are the takeaways?
0: Yeah, so um, I do wanna I don't wanna leave too much of a cliffhanger with the cognitive physical training. Please, please. I, I do wanna say that technology is evolving. There are apps and virtual reality solutions and extra gaming solutions and video-based solutions. That are out and will be coming out to sort of supplement this skill based approach or this more cognitively demanding exercise now and in the future. So, uh, if we look at certain micronutrients missing from our diet and we needed to fortify that in certain foods, that's what I think we're doing with cognitive physical training. Uh, we, like I said, we evolved to perhaps have this it's been missing, we can get it from certain things, but we might need to supplement it artificially. So I would say the the future is um, hopeful for this. Uh, Just last week, there was a technology called Lightbox, Lightboxer, I believe, I probably butchered that, but it's a technology that's in partnership with Gloveworks and it's basically a boxing oriented dance dance revolution where it's like a $1,500 setup that you can get in your home and there's lights and it's rhythmic and it's cognitively demanding and it's basically cognitively enhanced boxing. <laughs> so, uh, and just before I came here, I was doing uh, virtual reality based exercise. I was playing this game called Supernatural that uh, places you in beautiful 360 degree environments and you have a, a black bat and a brown bat and there's different colored targets coming at you and you're lunging through differently shaped triangles and hitting different things and it's measuring your power output. It's kind of like Peloton in the sense it's got a instructor that's talking you through it and doing the workout with you. Like I did that for 15 minutes before I came here. So I wanna, I'm not saying that's right for everybody, um, but these solutions are here and also emerging But going to your takeaways, it's not always necessary. I think people hear me talk about that and they hyper focus on it and they think if they're not getting this cognitive motor stimulation that they're failing. So to to simplify the takeaways, let's start at the most basic level and then work our way up. The most basic level is that if you are not exercising exercise and I don't care what it looks like right now, just start doing it. If it's five minutes of walking fine if it's 20 minutes of exercise with your friend or on a zoom uh, exercise class great you do not have to hit that 150 minutes to be successful but it's a great place to aim for right if you are exercising currently try to see if you are meeting those 150 minutes if you are great the next level is try to see if you're meeting the intensity guidelines of moderate to vigorous if you are great Now let's see if you can uh, achieve those 150 minutes variably. So just like if I had to hit 2,500 calories, the way I get there probably matters. The way I probably get to those 150 minutes might matter too. So if you can diversify the way you get there with resistance training and or aerobic training and or skill or motor-based training, try to do that in a way that's enjoyable, feasible, and it's in a way you can accomplish it and do that. Um, if you have done that, try to increase the amount of frequency or minutes you're participating in exercise. Uh, so for example, 300 minutes versus 150 minutes. If you are, if if you're there, you're doing pretty well so far, right? Uh, if you are there, try to look at those three areas, aerobic resistance and skill based, and try to self-assess which one you could use more of and do that. We could get more specific. We could say, if you are doing all three of those things and you're meeting the 150 to 300 minutes guidelines and you're meeting the moderate to vigorous intensity, awesome. What variables can we play with? Can we play with frequency? Can you do it instead of two times a week or three times a week? Can you do it five, six, or seven days a week? Can we play with intensity a little bit? I think some people that hear this quote unquote ideal prescription might be very anxious and obsessive about achieving that, hey, maybe we can be more relaxed and incorporate more stress management practices. If you're a type A personality, this is especially true. Um, I don't know how scientifically valid the type A personality is, but there are those people that just go for it and really want to achieve. I'm thinking the, the CEO types that I often coach that say, oh, I'm not hitting that and they're really stressed about it. Maybe incorporate more stress management, lower intensity mind-body-based practices like Tai Chi or restorative yoga because you probably need it right um the other variables are things like enjoyment uh that 1 to 10 of cognitive load um maybe are there opportunities to incorporate more socialization into your exercise program maybe are there ways to engage a fitness professional like a personal trainer an exercise physiologist or a physical therapist to guide you maybe push you that's not always their purpose just to push but maybe give you variability there there are opportunities in which you could take resistance training. You could say you're competent in strength training, but maybe if they teach you a mo- new movement, that is skill learning, right? And oftentimes movement professionals can be helpful for that. So I, I hope it wasn't uh, too complicated, but I want to give sort of a stepwise uh, prescription or recommendation based on your readiness or where you might be at now.
1: No, oh, I think it's super helpful. And, it, and people can identify where they're at and make that connection that's
0: there. And I think people are at different places at different points in their life. Right now, I just need to exercise more. (laughs) It really doesn't matter what kind, I just need to get more minutes and I probably need to get out of breath more. I've been more distracted, I've been more stressed, uh, my ADHD is worse, I have a hard time focusing on things lately. So what I need is more sustained aerobic exercise. I've been lifting weights, but I've been like stopping when it gets too intense. Right? And I've been doing the XR gaming that I just described, which is great, but I probably just need to do more aerobic exercise or more high intensity interval training for me personally. Right, And, and I wasn't there three months ago, but I'm there right now, and that's mm-hmm. okay.
1: Yeah, and I, th- I think that that's the key part, especially last month. We did a whole series of conversations around self compassion, and there's so much guilt. Yeah. And then sometimes shame associated with not moving, mm-hmm. and the feeling of like I'm not doing enough, I'm not creating enough, and that has been all exacerbated by the pandemic. That's there. Not that people didn't have those feelings beforehand. So, what would it look like if you just forgave yourself today for whatever happened in the past, and just said, "If I just did a little something,
0: yeah, if I just did a little something." Or if and you in that direction? if you did nothing at all but forgave yourself for that. So last night I swore I was going to exercise. I got caught up in talking to people and conversating and I just didn't get to it and then dinner was ready and usually I exercise before dinner and then I felt rushed. I said, you know what, I'm not gonna wait for dinner to get cold, I'm just gonna skip exercise and have dinner with my fiance, right? And I I was upset about that initially and then um, I, I said, you know what, it's fine, I'll do it tomorrow, I'll have more time tomorrow. And I did spend time socializing and that's good for brain health too right? I, and I don't so do okay. enough of that personally. I'm kind of a hermit and I'm studying and I'm researching and I'm writing and I'm playing video games by myself inside. And I needed to socialize more at that time. So I agree with you. It's it's part of the softer elements of behavior change and sort of the more qualitative elements that are so important. Things like self-compassion being especially valuable in those contexts.
1: Huge. Ryan, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for yes. coming on and talking to us about this Emerging area, you know, we've had many conversations about, you know, how helpful brain, uh, exercise is for the brain, but to really parse it out and to expand on it further. I think our audience is, uh, really going to enjoy that. Uh, let's talk about like how people can find you and where things are at. Um, and also you have a course. That yeah. people can check out too. So let's talk about the basics, the the center that you're at, yeah, and uh, some of the uh, you know social media, and then I'd love to mention the course.
0: Yeah. So um, my my nine to five is the Pacific Brain Health Center. I often have to pinch myself because I get to work alongside probably the most talented uh, clinicians in brain health. Uh, very diverse interdisciplinary team, both in the clinic and in in research capacities. Um, That is uh, it's a it's an outpatient clinic that is part of St. John's Hospital or Providence. Um, It's a it's a Medicare clinic. And if you want to learn, they also accept other forms of insurance, uh, primarily geriatric communities. Right. So it's not. You know, bulletproof labs. It's not a biohacking space. It's not a cash pay brain health center. Um, most of the time, it's people looking to prevent cognitive decline and want to get more uh, diagnostics around that to, to assess their risk factors. Individuals that maybe are experiencing cognitive decline, or maybe you have friend or family member that. Uh, has cognitive issues and, and hasn't really been assessed or maybe wants a second opinion, this is a, a, a good place to go if you're local. Um, and do they have any other locations? Uh, it, it's the, the one here in Santa Monica is the only location right now. Um, of course, they, like many other uh, medical practices, are engaging in telehealth, um, but y- you should be in California um, and uh, you should sort of fit the profile that I described. Uh, if you want to learn more about that, uh, you can go to PacificBrainHealth.org to learn how to uh, maybe contact someone and register as a patient there. Um, and if people are looking for similar centers in their states, is there uh, a list or a place where? Yeah, I think can like kind of the uh, yeah. So like, there's the Mayo Clinic. There's uh, so the all these places Clinic. have
1: like a brain health training center.
0: Type? Uh, they don't have specifically what I do. Uh, most people do not. Um, but if you're trying to like have a conversation with me and work out with me in our brain gym, it's not really open to the public just yet. It's only open for, we're only using it for research right now and, uh, certain patients in very close, close groups and like beta testing groups. So it's still in its kind of testing phase. Um, I, I would love the future to have tons of these brain gyms, but it's a very experimental approach and therefore we're not going to open it and, you know, sure a big explosion of these and say this is better than regular exercise. i I would say uh if you're really into the exercise piece and you want to do more go with what i've been saying on this podcast more than come to us and and look for more right uh i would say i gave more here than i might give in the clinic although i do do brain health coaching but um i wouldn't come to us looking for the brain gym just yet hopefully in the future we can change that uh but it's still in its its beta testing phases Um, So I I wouldn't say there's other places uh, right now. I know the Beth Israel Deaconess Center did have like a brain fitness program. Uh, I'm not sure how accessible that is. But anywhere there's an outpatient brain health center, um, you you can check that out. There's many of them across the country. I I know that um, Dr. Richard Isaacson has given different ones out there. Hilarity for Charity or HFC has had different lists out there. If you're looking for yourself or loved ones to get assessed and get get care from a neurologist, neuropsychologist, et cetera. Um, what was the next question? <laughs> oh, uh, how people
1: can find you if they yes. want to keep in touch. You do so, education, you have other right. podcasts. Thank you.
0: So um, I've been on some other podcasts. Uh, hopefully I can do more in the future to get get this information out there that I believe is free and low cost and, and people that stuff that people can use to kind of self-assess and self-prescribe. And I do can not- find that on your website. Right, so uh, ryanglatt.com. My Instagram is at glatt.brainhealth, G-L-A-T-T dot brain health. I'm going to attempt to start putting more uh, accessible information and programs out there. Right now, uh, my focus is on training the trainers and training the health and fitness industry. So training personal trainers, physical therapists, functional medicine practitioners on how to take this exercise prescription approach to brain health. Um, because I think that is important. Uh, I am I'm not so focused on, you know, directly working with the masses as I'm focused on training the personal trainer that has 30 other people. Right. Um, I think with the, the pressure and assistance of people such as yourself, that might change. We, I might find a better way to get stuff out there to the community and have a program. Uh, but with, with research still happening, And with people having such individual differences, I've held off on that. I want to focus more on the research and learning more myself uh, before I start unveiling the curtain of a a consumer program right now. Um, So I would say that if people want to learn more about the educational offering, maybe they work with a professional, they want to point towards this, or you are a health and fitness professional or or health or fitness professional, you could go to brainhealthtrainer.com to learn more about that. Um, And that's it. Yeah, and they can figure out like you said that it's
1: it's a course, it's a certification.
0: Yeah, and take. I've had some non uh health or fitness professionals go through it. It's pretty dense, I will warn you. Uh and it is for primarily professionals. Yeah. So, but Amazing. if I by all means I've I've met a lot of people that said, "You know what? I really want to learn more. I'm going to go through it. Go for it." Yeah. That's awesome, man. Sure. Ryan, again, thank you for
1: coming on and sharing your knowledge with us. It's really uh not only is it exciting, but it's also super hopeful, you know? And uh, and especially, you know, we have, uh, I don't know when Dale Bredesen's podcast is coming out, maybe it just already came out or it's coming out in the, you know, a little bit after this, but the important message I think is that cognitive decline is, is, is legitimately one is legitimately now the scariest, you know, um, ailment. And Alzheimer's is now, I think, the scariest disease that's out there. You know, it's yeah, one even thing Bill hit,
0: Gates said that's the number one thing he's afraid of is yeah. is losing his mental faculties. Losing your yeah. mental faculty,
1: because people feel like, okay, you have cancer, not that that can also be connected to and have a connection
0: to like having dementia. And cognitive issues, yeah. Cognitive issues, I think over 75% of cancer survivors have at least subjective cognitive complaint. Right, yeah. and so many things
1: of like breast cancer, or prostate cancer, two of the most common cancers that are out there. It's like, okay, this is there, but at least you still have your mind, for the most part, we'll, you know, yeah. again. But then when you have cognitive decline or you have full-blown Alzheimer's or some version of dementia, you literally are not even yourself. And that's a very scary thing. So anything that we can do that will help us in that direction to avoid that, you know, years down the line is a, is a great tool. But not only avoid that, but also feel better today. Yeah.
0: And I think regardless of where you sit, whether you're a practitioner or you're just, you know, you're your you're general person listening to this, trying to get more information to, to keep your brain healthy, or if you're trying to make recommendations for someone with dementia, for instance, uh, or a researcher, I think everyone is very hopeful and excited about exercise. But one thing is for sure, there's a lot more we have to learn, uh, especially when I'm talking about these different variables and these different modalities. Um, and we're, we're all students of this and the, the research can't happen soon enough. And there always needs to be more research on this. But once again, the world health organization puts it at the top of their list. And there's no reason we can't experiment with these variables as long as they're not harmful or overtly stressful for people. And I'm very excited because I myself need this. And I think everyone can, can access this. And I, it's going to be an, an interesting aspect of functional medicine that, can and should evolve uh, alongside these nutritional conversations. There's just been such an explosion with nutrition and biohacking technologies. And I, I watch all of it with fascination and intrigue and I'm like, Oh, that's, that's really cool. But also what about exercise? <laughs> right? <laughs> and I just sort of want to, as much as I have ADHD myself, bring everyone back. Like, you know, it's, it's pretty validated and it's pretty important. I think we should continue to invest more time and curiosity in it. Well said. Ryan, thank you again. Thanks for having me.